Well, periodically we, we pause in a sermon series and we just focus on a purpose and pursuits, one of the things we pursue as a church or why we exist. And so we do so this morning, actually. Uh, this is right from our philosophy of ministry. I thought I'd uh, read this so that you see it. I thought I had it up here, but I forgot, so I'll read it off the screen here. Evangelism and Emissions uh, Partnership. The mature Christian actively participates in both local and global evangelism. He or she is marked by a heartfelt concern for the lost, lost, diligently prays for their salvation, and is intentional about sharing the gospel with them, and partners in the international mission efforts via financial support in order to reach them. So that's what we envision a, a mature follower of Jesus is, but you notice on our mission statement, we are seeking to make maturing followers of Jesus. We're, we're not expecting that any of us are, have fully arrived at the place of maturity, but we're, we're seeking to grow uh, in that. And one of those aspects is to be a, a, a person, a follower of Jesus, that is concerned with the lost on all corners of the earth, that we're not just concerned only about family members that we have surrounding us, but everybody on the face of the earth that is without Christ, that we would be concerned about them. Um, so this morning we're going to pause and talk about missions, missions in the historical sense, in the sense that somebody actually leaves their homeland and it go, crosses different bear, uh, borders. So they cross geographical uh, borders, they are boundaries, you would say, uh, geographical, linguistic, cultural boundaries to take the gospel and serve it somewhere else. There's other ways more recently that people use the word missions, but historically that's what it would cover. Crossing boundaries of ge geography, linguistic boundaries, as well as uh, cultural boundaries. Uh, so let me give a quick disclaimer as we talk about, um, let me just put that up, uh, this topic. Uh, I'm super intimidated uh, talking about missions. And as I've reflected on why I would be so intimidated by the topic, uh, I, I really, there's two things, I think. Uh, one, you know, I get intimidated a little bit when I like, have, have preached on prayer or fasting or something like that. Um, those aren't my strong suits, but I've, but I've done them and do them, right? So I, I can encounter them. I've experienced them. Um, so at least there's, there's I, I can at least talk about how bad I am in, in them because I know how bad I am. Uh, now, when I think about long-term missions, uh, I've just never experienced it. So I've never been a long-term missionary. I've gone on four short-term mission trips to different international countries, but not long-term. So it's just a world that I just don't know. And so I just find that intimidating. Uh, the second reason is I've heard some really, really good sermons on missions. I feel like a lot of the, the ones that I've heard are very, very powerful, and I just don't want to bring down the average. You know, so it's <laughs> like, well, maybe I'll just let other people talk about uh, missions. Uh, so we'll, we'll see what we can do here today. We're going to use uh, Psalm 117 as our base passage. Uh, there is two interesting facts about Psalm 117. If you're ever playing Bible trivia, these could help you. Uh, so two very interesting facts. Number one, you could probably guess it, it's the shortest chapter in the Bible, just two verses. Right? So go ahead and memorize that one and tell people you've memorized the whole chapter and uh, that you know, you'll feel good about yourself. So shortest chapter of the Bible, two verses. Uh, we, we don't want to mistake the shortness for... Uh, the significance, though, right? Just because it's short doesn't mean it's insignificant. It, it's a very significant psalm. The other interesting fact uh, is that it, as, it is the very middle chapter of the Bible. So 
There's 594 chapters before it, 594 chapters after it. It is the exact middle chapter of the Bible. So there you go for a little Bible uh, trivia. Uh, let me read it again. Uh, since it's so short, it won't take us long. Uh, first, I'll give you what I think is how you could sum up the main point, and then I'll, I'll read it. I, I think you could say it this way. The, this is the heart cry of God's people. And it says, let everyone worship the Lord who loyally loves his people. Let everyone worship the Lord who loyally loves his people. The psalmist says, verse 1, Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Let everyone worship the Lord who loyally loves his people. What I want to do is just simply meditate on that heart cry first uh, and why that is the very fuel for missions and then talk about the roles of missions. Uh, so let's just think about that, that very main idea. Let everyone worship the Lord who loyally loves his people. First of all, the what. What is, what is he calling us to do? Well, it's very simple. To worship the Lord. There you actually see it uh, in three different ways in the, in the psalm. Verse 1, praise the Lord. Using different terminologies, second line, extol him or glorify him. Give him honor. And then, of course, he ends it at the very uh, end of the second verse. Praise the Lord once again. So I think we can sum that up as worship the Lord. And worship, we should note, is not just simply singing, right? It's not... Not necessarily less than singing, but it's, it's more than singing. So worship is not just singing with our lips. Remember, Jesus said, these, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Right? So it's very possible to sing with our lips, but not actually worship the Lord. Like That's very possible. So worship is something deeper than the lips. So worship is a way of ascribing greatness. Or, or, or worth to some, something or someone. It's, it's, it's to ascribe that they, they are very great. But even, even more, it's, it's also to, to give authority to something over you. So you might think of it like this. If, if we were having conversations over the course of a couple of weeks or months, and, and every time we were talking about a topic and, and about opinions, and I always ran to, well, John Piper says this. And you, then you gave me your opinion. I was like, well, yeah, but John Piper says this. And I always just kept running back to John Piper's opinion as if it was like law over me. Once John Piper says it, that seals it for me, right? At some point, you'd, you'd stop and you go, man, it's, it kind of sounds like you, you like worship John Piper, right? Because what's happening is I've, I've put John Piper, not only by saying he's, he's worth imitating or listening to, but he has this place over the authority of my opinion, my thoughts, whatever he says, like that, that's where I must go. So worship has this idea of, of giving authority to the object of your worship. When we think of worshiping God, it's this idea of treasuring God in the heart that then gets manifested externally. So the author of Hebrews actually is helpful here. He says, through him, through, through Christ, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. And then he defines it. He says, that is the fruit of lips 
which acknowledge his name. So fruit being something that is, is externally shown from the inside. It's the fruit, the, the lips are the fruit that are acknowledging his name. And then he goes on and says, do not neglect doing good and to give or to share with others. By such sacrifices, God is pleased. So at the top and the bottom, he comes to this idea of sacrifices. Worship is this sacrifice to God. It starts internally. The fruit are the lips that proclaim the name of God and then are worked out externally by doing good to others. And so worship then is actually a way of life. It gets manifested externally, but it starts internally. That we, we first treasure God inside, and then our life begins to sing about God, to speak about God, and then to do good as God calls us to. So that, that's worship in itself. And then notice what, who the object of our worship is. He says it each time. Praise the Lord. Extol him. Praise the Lord. That's, that's Yahweh. Praise him. Everybody was created to worship. We actually feel alive when we worship. The question is, what do we worship? And can that worship actually sustain us and give us joy such that it is worthy to worship? So people will worship jobs, careers, spouses, sports, entertainment, reputation, relationship, a lot of things, right? This is this idea of, of treasuring something so much as if it can give you sustainability, safety, security, hope, and joy. But the reality is, is none of those things can do that. And none of those things can actually give us that joy. Only our creator can actually give us the sustaining joy that we long for. So, so what the what here is just simply calling us to worship the Lord, but it's not just a command, it's an invitation Come, come and worship the Lord and let your soul find freedom and joy. This is not drudgery. This is God calling us to freedom. This is something that no human can do. I can't call people to come worship me. If I did, that would be arrogant and I wouldn't be able to satisfy you. Only God has the ability to say, come and worship me because I can give you the joy that your soul longs for. So this is an invitation to the people. Come, worship the Lord and find joy for your soul. Second, let's talk about the why. Why worship Yahweh? Well, he tells us, actually, verse 2, notice how it starts. For, or because. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples, because great is his steadfast love. Toward us. So the why here is very, very important. We need to fuel our hearts for why we worship. In other words, the, the command here then is not simply just worship the Lord and just leave it at that. That would be sufficient. That would be fine. But we need fuel. We need, to, we need something to drive us and continue to stir up that worship in us. And that's something that we have to do continually. So we're actually, uh, Lord willing, uh, we're scheduled to head towards sunny pastures in Florida on Thursday uh, afternoon. Uh, wouldn't it be silly if I said, okay, kids, we're going to try something new this time. We're going to fill up the gas tank on our way once, and we're going we're gonna to just see if we can make it. 
right? That, that's not going to work. I'd be calling up one of you. Can you, come get, can you come bring your little red gas tank and fill me up? It's just not going to work. It's, it, we have to, you have to continuously stop and refuel and refuel and refuel. That's what, that's what we have to do as God's people is refuel us with the right fuel so we can actually worship. The fuel that is going to stir up worship inside that's going to then be manifested externally is, according to this psalm, is God's steadfast love or God's faithfulness. I state this as the loyal Love of God. The Hebrew word here uh, for love is, is what uh, is, is often used throughout Scripture as God's covenant-keeping love. It, it's, it's, it's meant to, to give the imagery of a love that is uh, the steadfast is a good translation. Uh, actually, I think it was Coverdale who invented the word loving kindness. Because it gets translated all sorts of different ways of mercy, kindness, steadfastness. It's this love that's, that's unchanging. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't end. It's never ending. It doesn't change. Go up, it doesn't go up and down. It is, it is steadfast. This is God's loyal love that will never change. Now, this is important for us to see here uh, because, well, actually, I, already, I guess I already talked about that part. So, sorry. Excuse me. Um, this, this word actually first starts coming up um, in Genesis, right from the early pages, but it doesn't really get talked about a whole lot about God himself. Uh, you see this in Joseph, I believe it's the first time it comes up, talking about God. Uh, Joseph had been thrown into prison. Remember, he was, he was uh, traded off or sold off by his brothers. Uh, into He's now in Egypt. And then it says that God was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the, the keeper of the prison. I love that verse, actually, because it's this idea of his brothers had forsaken him, his brothers had given him up, but not Yahweh. Yahweh showed steadfast, loyal love. God is loyal to his people. This really picks up when you get to uh, Exodus. So Genesis, Exodus. This is now God had gathered his people. He's brought them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and he's gathered them in the wilderness. Now, this is in Exodus 34. The people have, have grumbled along the way. And, and uh, Moses here in Exodus 34, talking with the Lord, saying, Lord, if, if you don't go with us, we can't go. And, and somehow you, you need to show me your glory. And so God said, well, you can't see me. But, uh, you know, go, I'll, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rocks and you can, you, you, can, you can see my back. And God passes before him in Exodus 34. You remember this maybe. Uh, and, and, and God says, you know, the pastor Exodus 34, 6, that God passed before him and proclaimed. So here's God proclaiming to Moses, this is who I am. This is what I am like. The Lord, the Lord, even, even the name Lord, Yahweh, it has this idea of the, the one who is self-sustaining. The Almighty One who, who doesn't need anything from anyone. The Lord. The Lord. A God merciful and gracious. Slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that's our word. I love the, the phrase even there. Abounding in steadfast love. It's spilling over. This is how God de describes himself. This is who I am. The one who created us, the one who is self-existent, he is full and abounding and overflowing with loyal love. And that's why the psalmists love to sing about the loyal love of God. 
Uh, and it's, you, you find the word most in this book, in the book of, of Psalms. And notice who the object of God's love is. It's right there at the end of the first line of verse 2. For great is his steadfast love toward us. Now there he's referring to God's people. He's not referring to the human race in general, but particularly to his people. Now, yes, you could say that God loves everyone as the creator, right? He, he loves everyone in that, that sense. But we see in Psalm 5, Psalm 11, that God hates not only sinning or sin, but he hates sinners. Because God created people to worship him and find joy in him. And when they rebel against him and raise their fists against God, God is also good and just and will pour out wrath upon sinners. So he has a good and righteous hatred towards sinners and will judge sinners. And it's only if people have atonement, somehow their punishment has been made that, that, that God can gather a people, right? And so then God loves his people in a very particular way. And so we don't want to miss this and just kind of say that God loves everybody the same way because he doesn't. He loves his people with a very particular love. So I could stand up here, or many of you could stand up here and just look out at everyone and say, I, I love you. Right? That, that would be appropriate. We, would, we wouldn't think that's super weird. What would be really weird is say, I love you and I love my wife Danica just the same way. You would think, no, that, that is strange. Is there something wrong with you? You should love your wife in a very particular way that's different from loving other people, even, even people that you've run the race of faith with for years. It's a different love. It's very particular. It's a covenant that's unique. This is the covenant-keeping God. This is the covenant love of God, and it's very unique. It's only for his people. And if we were to ask, where, where do we see the covenant loyal love of God most clearly demonstrated? Is it, is it not in the greatest mission ever in the history of the world when, when the Son of God, God eternal, took on flesh, left heaven, and came to the sin-soaked world to live a perfect life and die in the place of sinners so that they could be brought back to God? Is that not the greatest mission and the, the, the most beautiful demonstration of God's loyal love? He comes to people not who deserve God's kindness, but to people who deserve God's wrath who have sinned against God, and yet he gives his life for the joy set before him. He endured the cross. And brothers and sisters, for those of you who have placed yourself under that king, under the Lord Jesus, and trusted in his death on your behalf, and have been brought back to God, your sin has been paid, and you are now a child of God, and his, his love is very particular to you. And you can never outrun this love. That's why the Apostle Paul, in Romans, he says, who, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tell me someone. He says, well, will tribulation, will distress, will persecution separate us from the love of Christ? Will famine, will nakedness, will danger, or sword? No, 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 no. As it is written, he says, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. It's for your sake. Yes, we are being killed all the, all the day long. That doesn't separate us from the love of Christ. It's actually for your sake. 
we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Then he says, no, in all these things, in famine, in persecution, in nakedness, in uh, danger, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, I am sure, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, uh, nor, uh, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Brother and sister, you who are in Christ, you will never be separated from this love of God. Now when we taste that, something changes in our soul. Because there's nothing else on earth that is actually like this. I mean, some of you have have hardly even experienced at all a true loyal love from people. You've been raised in homes where there's anything but loyal love. You've been hurt by family, not cared and nourished by them. And some of you come from good homes and are in good marriages and praise God for that. But even that, that is so limited. That love still goes up and down. Not this love, not the love of Christ that he has for his people. That will never, ever change. And you cannot outrun it. And when we taste this, it gives us a sense of, a sense of stability in the soul. What can man do to me? When Almighty God loves me with an unfailing, unchanging, never-ending love, what can man do to me? And what can this world provide that can give me that kind of joy? And it causes us to want to share that joy with others. Right? And anytime, you know, when you experience something that you love, uh, you, you want to share it with other people, you want to talk about it with other people, or, or just something you enjoy, right? If you have a great meal, you want, you want to tell someone, or this happens a lot when I tell a really funny joke, and you, you, everybody wants to look at each other and say, "Isn't that great?" Like, right? I mean, this happens a lot, right? Maybe not, right? Uh, but what happens is, like, we instinctively you look at the person next to you and you smile. There's there's something that takes the joy to an another level because we want to experience that joy with someone. That's that's why when you when you watch a movie at home all by yourself and you love it it's very hard to not tell someone, right? Because it increases our joy. And when we taste, really taste, God's loyal love, the psalmist uh, is kidding at, this will cause us to praise God, and then we want to see the nations praise God. Because we have to ask the who. Who is, he being, call- who, who is being called to worship Yahweh? Well, this is actually the heart cry of God's people calling the nations to praise, right? This is, look at verse 1 again there. Praise the Lord, all nations. Praise the Lord, all peoples. This, this is meant to be a cry, a heart cry of God's people calling the nations about telling them to look at how God has loyally loved us and come under that reign. Come and find Great joy for your soul. Come and worship Yahweh, the one who will loyally love his people. Come under his reign. Come and drink from the waters that never run dry. Come, come all nations, come all peoples, and find rest for your soul. Find forgiveness from your sins, and find joy. This is a call to everyone. 
So that is the very heart cry of God's people. But the reality is, we look at the world, and that heart cry is not completed, right? I mean, we don't see all nations. We don't see all peoples worshiping the Lord. Right? Even if you just think of, there's a, a cool website you can go on, the Joshua Project. Since like the middle 90s, they've been, they've been basically just doing a lot of research trying to find, find out how the gospel has extended to the ends of the earth. And they're just, they just gather a lot of data. Everything's free on there. They have a lot of really great information. That's the Joshua Project. Um, so you'll see on there that it, roughly anywhere from 30 to 40% of the world is what's considered unreached. An unreached people group, when you think of people group, think of people that share uh, a common history, a common language, and a common culture. Right? So they, it's, it, when they tell stories, it's, it's about what they tell the story as us and them. Right? So they share the history, culture, language. There's, there's 30 to 40% of people live in what's called the unreached people group. An unreached people group is uh, a group of people that has less than 2% uh, evangelical Christian. Okay. So if, if there's 3% evangelical Christian, that, that's considered a reached group. It doesn't mean everybody in the group is Christian. It means that there's enough people in the, the culture that, that people will have a better opportunity to talk to someone that shares the same language and history with them. Okay. So there's, that would be considered a gospel movement within that group. But if you have less than 2% in your group, then you're considered unreached. It, it would be very unlikely that you would ever meet someone, if you're an unreached group, in your whole lifetime that speaks the same language as you, has the same history, that actually knows Jesus. So around two to three billion people in the world today live in that type of culture that is totally unreached. And they say that uh, one, uh, 3% of missionaries, somebody that, that takes the gospel from their homeland to go take it somewhere else, 3% of all missionaries get that are sent out, uh, only three of them go to that 30 to 40% of unreached people groups. So the vast majority of missionaries that get sent out go to those pe people who already have a gospel movement in their culture. And only 3% go to the places where there is virtually no Christians. And only 1% of all missionary dollars is actually sent to this 30 to 40% of unreached. So most of the money sent to missions is always sent to the places where there's always a gospel movement. I'm not here to say whether that's right or wrong. I'm just saying those are the facts and to show that there's a massive gap of this psalm being realized, right? Praise the Lord, all nations. And there's a massive gap. There's a lot of gospel work to be done. And therefore, missions exist. And John Piper, years ago, I, I, I love his... Actually, I was earlier talking about worshiping John. That was a, a coincidence there. But John, John Piper says this. <laughs> but he helpfully said, missions exists because worship doesn't. And I thought that was very helpful. The reason why missions exist why somebody would actually leave their homeland and take the gospel to another culture is because worship's not happening in that culture. Right? That's the very reason for missions. In other words, in glory, when we get to the new creation, there won't be missions. Right? People won't leave their homeland and take the gospel somewhere because 
only people who worship Christ will be there. Right? So missions only exist because worship doesn't, because Psalm 117 is not realized. That's why missions is, even exist. And so the heart cry of God's people is that let everyone, let everyone worship the Lord who loyally loves his people. We don't see that happening, and therefore missions exist. And therefore it is right and good for people to say, you know what? There are people over there that do not worship the Lord. They do not know Christ. Should they die without Christ, they will face the judgment of God forever. And so it is right and good for us to say, let us among us send some folks to go. Go take the gospel and take it to them. They might never come back. But God rest their soul. Yeah? Admissions is right. And so let's just talk about the rules of missions. Uh, we'll, use, we'll use this illustration to kind of get us going here. I'm gonna, I want to talk about three roles of missions. I think you can talk about just two, two roles. It's, that would be fine, too. I feel like it's helpful to use three. Uh, in, in college, for some of the years, uh, years ago, I, I did some painting you know, during summertime. And uh, one, of the, one of the things that at times we would have to have kind of a, a goofy setup. And so you'd have to have someone go up on the top of the ladder. And you'd have to have someone holding the ladder at the bottom, right? Because it's whatever, they had to stretch real far or something like that, that would be often, it would be very common. So you're up on an exterior part of the house, there's a, maybe the garage comes out and you can't get to a certain part and you can't really, so you just have to like, you're up on the top of the ladder and you're just kind of reaching out and you're, right? And it's, it's, it's kind of dangerous, so you have to have someone actually sitting on the ladder, holding the ladder somehow so that the ladder is not shaking or something like that, right? Nowadays, they probably got better protocols. We just use somebody at the bottom of the ladder, right? So let's just go with that. So somebody's got to be at the bottom of the ladder. You have someone on the top, you have someone on the bottom, but then you also have this third person that paid for the ladder. The only way that the work's going to get done is that ladder is paid for. You don't have a ladder, you're not going to get it done, all right? And so in missions, you have three roles, and we'll walk through them. First, let me give you, uh, give you them. You have the goers, Right? or that, that, what we would call the missionary, the people that go, they leave their homeland, take the gospel to another place. That, that's the person painting on the top. Right? They're, they're actually doing the labor. You also have the supporters, the people that uh, are at home, they're at the bottom, they're holding the ladder, maybe they're pointing out, you know, reach over a little bit farther, go a little bit higher, make sure you're getting that. You're, you're supporting the person actually doing the work. You're helping them, you're holding it, you're, you're, you're protecting them in some measure. But then you have this third person that actually funds the project. This, this in missions, this, this would be the idea of uh, God, has, God has uniquely equipped certain people, certain of his people, that make a lot of money. That can be dangerous work, but that's good work. That, that can be very good gospel work. He's, he's equipped certain people to make a lot of money to fund a lot of gospel projects. And throughout missions, or throughout the history of the church, I should say, m many gospel movements have folks like this that fund their major funders of projects. Okay? Now, there's overlap between the people at the bottom uh, holding the ladder and the people funding, but uh, for the sake of our discussion, let's keep it those three. Let's just walk through those three uh, a little bit. And uh, I want to, oh, there's a question that goes along with each one. And as we go through it, I would just encourage all of us to be asking the Lord, God, if my heart cry, whether it's strong today or weak, 
is to see the nations praise your name. And I know that somehow I should be involved in seeing that happen, seeing that realized, and I should be involved in missions somehow. Where would you have me be involved this year? Okay. So we'll go through that. First of all, the people who go, the people who leave. We're talking about long-term here. Long-term missions. People that cross the boundary of geography, language, culture to take the gospel. This can be men, it can be women, it can be old, it can be young. It might look very different uh, on the ground, but at the very core of it is taking the gospel, administering the gospel in another place. It can be married, it can be singled, uh, single folks. These are, these are people that have been so compelled by the love of God in Christ that they want to take it to another people. And so they're going to do that. Like Abraham of old, they left their homeland and went to the land of promise that God called them to. Like Christ himself, he left glory and came and ministered among his people. Maybe someone here. Maybe God would call someone here in the next year, two years, to, that God continues to stir and say, yes, yes, Lord, maybe you are calling me to take the gospel to another country. That would be glorious. That would be wonderful. We would love to serve, uh, serve uh, you and to send you out. Here's, here's the question we can ask ourselves. If, if our heart cry, whether it be strong or small, is that every person, the nations, would worship Yahweh, would worship Christ, would come underneath his reign, if that's a heart cry, and yet there's still a great need, why am I not going? Okay, So let's think about that question. Ask yourself, why are you not going to the nations? Why am I not going to the nations? I'm going to give a, a, a series of ways that we can answer that. Either these are answers that I've given to myself or I've heard other people give. And just do, do a little bit of a thought on it. Is it a good reason or a bad reason? I think, there's, I think there's good reasons not to go. Okay, So I think you'll hear some of them. And I think there's some bad reasons not to go. It's just what are we functioning out of? I, I think all of us should at least be able to answer that question. Why am I not going to the mission field? One reason could be that I'm not spiritually healthy. Is that a good reason or a bad reason? That's a very good reason not to go on the mission field. Okay, if you're not spiritually healthy, missions is not a place to go find out if you're spiritually healthy. It's not a place to go and get spiritually healthy. You need to be spiritually healthy because it's going to be very tough work. And so you need to be spiritually healthy. Now, we don't use that and say, I'm not spiritually healthy, therefore I'm not going to go, and I'm going to kick back here. No, we say, okay, great, we've pinpointed something. Let's get to a place of spiritual health. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to be a missionary then either, but let's just get to a place of spiritual health. So that would be a good reason. Uh, what about, why am I not going? I'm, I'm afraid of the danger. That would be a very real. I mean, you, you very well could be, if you go to certain countries, you very well might not come back. You might not die in an old age. They might actually kill you. Or they might take one of your children or your spouse, kidnap you. That's a very real thing, right, in other parts of the world. Is that a good reason or a bad reason not to go? Well, it's a real reason. I don't know if it's a good reason not to go. But it's real. I think if that's, if that's you, just be honest about that. And then entrust that to the Lord, right? To, to, to 
to tell the Lord, I'm afraid. Uh, another reason, I, I'm too old. You know, I'm, I'm about to retire. Or I did retire, I'm too old. I tell you, I don't think you're ever going to be too old to go on the mission field. And there's, some, there's been some very old missionaries uh, that have gone. So I, I don't think that's a, in a, a reason that we necessarily want to bank on uh, as being too old. I think of Jack Miller's wife. Uh, Jack uh, died in the 90s. Uh, Rosemary Miller, she's got a bi biography out that's wonderful. I think she was 80-something when she, she went as a widow and went back on the mission field. I mean, she's a glorious story. I and mean, there's wonderful stories out there of folks. Uh, they, they, they've lived here their whole life, retired, and now it's like, okay, now we're ready. Now we're ready to go. We don't have as, as many obligations here. Let's go. So uh, that's not a, a, a reason that we want to land on. Health limitations. I think that can be a very good reason not to go. Right? If you have health limitations that uh, can't be cared for in a certain land, that, that's appropriate. Uh, that, that could be the case. Uh, what about, you say, why, why am I not going? We say, well, that's not my gifting. Or I, I, I might not be good at that. Maybe, I don't know. You'd have to talk, ask Moses that one. If you remember Exodus 4, right? I, my tongue doesn't work, Lord. I, you know, he's got all these excuses. Or you might ask the, the disciples. How, how, how good were they at the mission? You know, you got a couple of fishermen. You know, who, who changed the world? So God's not looking for like a, a certain skill set necessarily. And I'm not saying we discount that, but we could at least question that. Or, or what if we say, well, the gospel is needed here. That's true. The gospel is needed here. And that may be a good reason, actually. But we should at least then ask, well, what are you doing with the gospel here? So that may be a very real reason. You say, no, no, the gospel is needed here, and this is how I'm sharing the gospel here. That's why I'm, I'm called to stay here. And that, I, I think, yes, that can be a very good reason not to go. God might very well be calling you to stay here. Most people will stay here. Uh, another reason. Uh, well, you, why am I not going? Well, you, you can be in, involved in missions many ways. Totally true. But again, we, sh we should at least ask, well, then what do you, how, are you, how are you being involved? What are you doing? If, you, if you're involved and God's called you to be involved in that way, great. Then that's a very good uh, reason. Or what, if, what about uh, my family dynamics are not healthy right now? Is that a good reason not to go to the mission field? Yes, it's a very good reason. Again, Missions would be very hard work, and you want to be at a place of health. Uh, so that would be a very good reason. Last reason here, uh, my skills are too useful here to be used on the mission field. Uh, I just want to say, for parents, as your kids grow older, I think this is a very real reason uh, that can get lodged in your soul when you look at your own kids. And let us not be a place that squelches any kids as they're being raised, as they're teenagers, and have a, a, a desire to take the gospel somewhere and just try to say, well, you're really smart. Just think of the things you can do here. The reality is, is some would have the idea, I, I think is right, we should be sending our, our best folks on the mission field. Missions is going to be very hard work, and we should, we should send our best so if you have great skills, great. You actually qualify. You should be going, provided all the other reasons are good. So that, that's just the who of mission. Those are the painters. 
why am I not going? Of course, there's, there's bad reasons to go as well. We don't have time for that. Uh, but what about those who support on the bottom? Uh, so we could just ask the question, what, what, what might it look like for me to be a supporter of missions this year? There's many ways, actually. You can, you can pray for missionaries. Uh, if you don't know, we support three missionaries as a church. Uh, it is the uh, Barretts. Uh, the Barretts were members here years ago. Then there's the Salvianos, which uh, uh, Nelson and uh, Marcia. Uh, and then we have Kali Haywood Lafto Church, uh, which is in Ethiopia. And they have, we have cards for them out on the resource table. You can find them on their, our website. You can pray for missions, pray for our missionaries. That is a wonderful way to serve missionaries and be a supporter at the bottom of the ladder through this next year. It's a wonderful way to pray for them. Uh, you can connect with them. You could, some of them you can Zoom call. You, we can get you their information. Uh, you could uh, send uh, you know, gifts to them. Uh, over Christmas or birthdays. It's a wonderful way to care for them. You can, you can send handwritten letters. Everybody still enjoys those uh, or emails. Uh, you can use WhatsApp to actually send more text messages. That works really good internationally. Uh, you can uh, do small group chats with them so your small group can gather at a certain time and just pray for the missionary. And of course you can visit. We've sent sm small groups. We've sent small uh, or short-term mission uh, groups to go. So visiting a missionary is a very good thing to do. Uh, our philosophy here at Crossway has been historically, we are not going to, with an agenda that we need a, a project to do. We simply want to find out what the missionary things would serve them. So if that means we're just going to go over there and eat with them, care for them, pray with them, watch their kids, that's what we'll do. We want to be a supporter of them. We don't want to make it a burden for them as we come and visit. But short-term missions, uh, caring for the missionary is a wonderful thing uh, to do. In fact, Kirk's going to be going to uh, Lafto Church uh, in a few months uh, that he spoke about last week uh, to go care for them, to, to demonstrate our care for them, to, to listen to them, learn how we can better serve them. Um, we actually will have a giving Sunday at the end of April. It's a wonderful way to be, take part in the mission is to just give some of our resources to care uh, for Lafto. Sending someone overseas is expensive. Uh, but we believe it's a great way to care for our missionaries, very tangible way of actually being there. Sometimes, you know, it's great to have phone conversations, which, which we've been able to do with LAFTO, and it's wonderful. Uh, and I've, I, know, I know with, like, Nelson as well, and the Barretts, it's great. But there's something different about being face-to-face -face with someone. You're right there, and you can talk. And so it's a great thing. We're excited to be able to send Kirk to go visit them. Uh, April will be our Giving Sunday. So what does it look like for you who are called to stay and be a supporter? What is it going to look like uh, to support? I should add, too, we give support as a church to the missionaries. So giving to Crossway in general is a way of financially supporting uh, that, their work. And then last, I want, I want to talk about these, these people who supply or fund. Um, if, if, if God has called you in particular to to be one of those people that makes a lot of money. Uh, there's a resource out, out uh, that I absolutely loved. In fact, during the, uh, for the uh, Christian biography of Reformation Sunday, I almost did this book. It's called Gospel Patrons by John Reinhardt. Gospel Patrons. And what, what uh, Reinhardt 
does is he traces three uh, what we kind of call Christian heroes of church history, right? Uh, William Tyndale, who uh, translated the Bible into English the first time. Uh, you have John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace and many other hymns that uh, are well known. And then also George Whitfield, the great evangelist. So he, he traces their stories. These are all people that many of us know, but behind all of them are people that are virtually unknown. So Hen uh, Humphrey Monmouth uh, is the, the person that actually housed Tyndale in his, in his home for a while. He was, he was an English merchant who had made a lot of money. And then eventually, uh, William Tyndale had to escape his own country and go. Uh, he lived in Germany for a while and then somewhere else, I think. And he actually then paid for his, his living expenses so that William Tyndale could actually produce the English Bible for us. Now, Monmouth is hardly known at all in the world. We don't have much of his writings or know much about him. We just know that he supported Tyndale in an incredible way. In fact, he was actually in prison for a year because he was so linked to Tyndale. So a, a patron, uh, what Reinhardt calls a gospel patron, isn't just somebody that just throws money. They actually are involved in the mission intimately, closely. What, can, what more can I do? And they get linked with this person um, so what, what Reinhardt makes the case is that in every gospel movement in the history of the church, there's always gospel patrons supporting it. These are people that have God is gifted with a particular set of money, and then they use it for gospel uh, purposes. And once you actually start seeing that, you actually start seeing it all over Scripture. So Luke actually tells us that there was these three women that ran with the crowd of Jesus and his disciples, and we're told that these three women supported the needs of the ministry of Jesus. Or as Paul uh, goes through that long list of people at the end of Romans, the first person he mentions is this woman named Phoebe. And he says, she was a gospel patron to me and to many. Or you think of Elijah, the great prophet. Remember there was that woman who, who made a room and just specifically for the prophet, for when he comes through town, he has a place of rest. And you start seeing that through, through Scripture. It's all over the place. God raises up people to make money, to care for the work of the gospel to go forward. Now, that can be a dangerous place, right, or a dangerous mission, because uh, some have estimated that Jesus talks of 25% of what he talks about is actually money. Right, Because we have a tendency to worship money, find our hope and security in money. So that can be very dangerous, but it can be a great blessing to the church. So perhaps God has called some in this church to, to do that. It might look something like this. Uh, so let's, let's say uh, uh, you're, you, know, you get to the age of 30, 35. God's given you a particular skill, and you, you've done quite well. You've raised the ranks in your career. And you legitimately, age 30, 35, you've made enough money, you legitimately could retire. Okay. Now, what should you do? Well, option A, what you could do is retire, kind of invest the money and allow that you go on the mission field and you allow all your investments to pay for you to go. That, that would be a God-honoring way to, to do it. Option B, you could say, no, I'm not, I'm not going to retire. I'm going to continue to make a lot of money and so that I can give a lot of money for the gospel. That would also be very God-honoring. So I don't, I don't think it's one or the other necessarily. It's what is God calling you to do? That could be a very God-honoring. The gospel movements need supporters. And if God has equipped you to do that, praise God. So the question uh, for you then would be to say, 
What would it look like for me to sacrificially be generous with my wealth for the sake of God's mission? And the second question you might, might ask is, who can I talk to about being a gospel patron? Maybe have someone evaluate your finances, evaluate your heart. That would be a good uh, place to start. So those are the roles of missions. Uh, let me repeat the questions that we can ask uh, in terms of evaluating where God has us in this season. Why am I not going? Might be good reasons, might, not, might be bad reasons, but at least how, how would I answer that? Why am I not going? Second, if God has called me to be a supporter at the bottom of the ladder, what, was, what would it look like for me to be a supporter this year? How can I be involved in the work of missions? And then third, if God has called you to be a gospel patron, one who makes a lot of money, to give a lot of money towards the work of the gospel, uh, what, what, what would it look like this year to, to, to take the next step, to be a sacrificial, uh, generous giver of your wealth for the sake of God's mission? Missions exist because the heart cry of God's people is not complete. The heart cry of God's people, let everyone worship the Lord who loyally loves his people. And with that, we will move to the Lord's table where we see a very clear picture of God's loyal love for his people. If you're here this morning and are a follower of Jesus, you are invited to partake of the table provided that you were walking in repentant faith and trusting in Christ, not perfectly, but um, it's not about perfection, but about direction. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus or you're um, walking in unrepentant sin, then we ask that you not partake. But if you're a follower of Christ, we ask you to come towards the inner parts of the aisle and then return to your seat and we will partake together. In the gospel, we see the ultimate picture of God's loyal love for his people. If you remember the Apostle Paul thinking about the death of Christ when he, he talks about, <clears throat> though per, perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God, God did something different. He shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were bad, Christ died for us. God's loyal love doesn't come after people who are good and have it together, but people who are broken and who are in need of a savior. Brother and sister, God's loyal love has been demonstrated to you. In the, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and saying, this is my body, which is for you. There are many times, uh, I know I experience, I trust many of you do, where you wonder if you have outrun the love of God. Perhaps you've done it, for the last time. It's the last straw. How could God's love be for you? Even you. What we don't want to do is look at ourselves at that time to say, well, I'm going to put it back together. We look to somewhere else, to someone who lived the perfect life and died in your place. If God is for you, who can be against you? He who did not spare his only son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him also freely give us all things? God loves you, not because of you, but because of Christ dying in your place and his never-ending, never-changing, unstoppable love for you in Christ. He took the cup after supper in the same way, saying, this cup, it is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me.